When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Welcome to Britain is a Nation of. The podcast where we explore British behaviour by unpacking statistics to understand the little differences and similarities between us all. I'm Stuart Henderson, head of news at Yahoo. And I'm Matilda Long, journalist at Yahoo. I'm Victoria Valdez, a data journalist at YouGov. And today we're talking about health. From how many of us would be willing to take the male pill to the future of the NHS and our biggest health fears. Oh dear. And we're joined by special guest Dr. Patricia McNair, author of Everything You Need to Know About the Human Body, hospice doctor and medical journalist and broadcaster for the BBC. Welcome, Dr. McNair. Hello. Hi. So I'm going to start our health discussion with a question about the NHS for the room. So my question is... Are you worried about the future of the NHS? And if so, what is it specifically that you're worried about, Tricia? The the NHS is changing and it's Mm. going to change dramatically. It it cannot go on as it is. Mm. It cannot meet the expectations we have and what it's done before. Uh, There's a lot of people at the moment looking at how it's going to change. So I'm I'm not really sure how it's going to change, but it it just cannot go on in its present format. Mm -hmm. Stuart, what are your thoughts? Um, it was interesting that sort of uh, Trisha didn't really say she was worried about it, though. It's just an acceptance. Yeah. It has to change, right? Yeah. So, well, I suppose I'm worried when I see it not coping when mm. I'm at work, when when everything has been struggling more and more to, mm-hmm. to be provided. Um, so, yes, I'm very worried, but um, I've been seeing it and hearing the issue for so long now that I just know it's going to change. Mm. Well, my answer is yes, I am worried. And the reason is uh, a lack of political will and funding, which obviously stems from that. Like we hear every year that, oh, funding's gone up, funding's mm. gone up, brilliant. And actually the one almost incredible thing uh, I think happened last year now mm. uh, was the expansion of the health secretary to be the health and social care secretary, yes. which I thought was potentially really important. And I don't know, but it doesn't seem like much has changed. Well, we haven't had the green paper that we were promised yet. Yes, exactly. As of uh, <laughs> April 2019. <laughs> so I, I think that, that the kind of, how it has to move with the times in terms of social care is going to be incredibly important and will probably, in my opinion, redefine and shape how the NHS is viewed by future generations. Mm. Okay. Victoria. Stuart stole my point. Oh. <laughs> uh, yay. No, that's exactly what I was... I think, yeah, I mean, how can you not be, I suppose, with everything that you see coming out mm. in the news about scare stories? And I think also... It's such a such a poignant subject for mm. Brits. Is that the right word to use? That was something that people feel so strongly about, uh, mm. has such an emotional connection to. Um, but yes, I think if you look at, uh, we've actually are exploring now at YouGov running a different survey just about um, whether people would be willing to take care of their parents in old age. 
um, or the extent to which they people feel that they're saving enough to be able to take care of themselves. Because mm-hmm. I think when you combine pensions crisis with lack of social care and aging populations, you have quite a scary mix. Jackpot. Yes, mm. yeah. Mm. I think uh, it's many things. We have to take more responsibility for our own health. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a young age onwards, we need to be doing more in schools to make right. children understand more about health. And yet at the, at the other end, we need to be doing more as families and communities to mm. support each other. And we, as you say, we've set the, the NH up as this amazing thing we're all really proud of that can provide anything that anyone <laughs> needs and it just can't. Unless you give it the money. <laughs> it's interesting, Victoria. You've, you've mentioned before you sort of come from, a, sort of initially from Germany, so mm-hmm. an outsider looking in, which is really, really interesting often can provide a different perspective. The fact you describe it, so that kind of poignant kind of mm. emotional connection we have obviously we do but I feel that's one of the biggest problems we have where it's really incredibly hard to make rational decisions around the NHS and and everything is framed within this whole it's the best thing we've ever done Labour we made it Tories we funded it it's it's, the best the best thing they could do is just completely depoliticise it which I know which I think they've tried to do yes but but then they just can't literally can't help themselves. It's also always so other studies that we've run at YouGov show that it's the institution that Brits are most proud mm. of when mm. you list all public services and it remains that. Like I think them and the fire brigade. Or so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so YouGov asked a series of questions about healthcare in general and the NHS specifically. So I'm actually going to look at a few of those. So the first question asked, how satisfied are you with your national healthcare system? And this question compared the answers of British people with respondents from eight other countries which were France, Finland, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Germany and the US. And 58% of Brits said they are satisfied with the quality of our healthcare system. It's pretty high. What do people mm. think about that number? I'm surprised it's not more in a way. I, I think yeah. I think we just don't appreciate what we get. Mm possibly until we become ill. Mm. Uh, and the very fact it's free, absolutely everything about it is free. Mm. And you only have to it's go free. to the States and see an itemised bill oh God, for it to yeah. really dawn on you how every single thing here is provided free and, and can be charged there. Mm. So of the nine countries that I mentioned, mm. the UK has the second highest levels of satisfaction after wow. Finland. I must admit, I don't really know very much about Finland's healthcare system. But <laughs> Baby boxes, I think, is all I've got from that. <laughs> yeah. But the, the lowest by some margin was the US. Only 22% of people are satisfied with their healthcare system. Not surprised. So the same survey also asked people whether they thought the NHS was better or worse than healthcare systems in other Western countries. And people were more likely to say it is better than worse. 32% said they think it's better, 25% said it's worse, 21% said the same, and 21% said they didn't know. That question relies so much on your knowledge of other systems, yes. right? Like, I think the US is the most obvious example that people draw, mm. partly, I suppose, just because we know a lot about the US, but mm. partly because it is similarly high on the political agenda, I suppose, yes, almost the way is. it is here, but from a very different angle, right? Mm. And I, th- I think the two comparators most people use are the financing or cost. Is this going to cost me anything? Mm. And then what can be provided? Mm. Uh, and of course, if you've got pots of money wherever you live, then you yeah. can have almost anything. But mm. um, in here, we appreciate it because of the cost. Uh, and we think everything's provided or most things, which which. It is, but we can't afford to anymore. Mm. I suppose your opinion of the NHS is so shaped by your own experience of it. So I'd say most people probably interact with the NHS through their GP. So they would see a long waiting time for the GP, whereas very few people, not very few people, but far fewer people access emergency care. And it's quite difficult to, I think, marry those things together 
when you haven't really experienced it yourself? I think so. I think in terms of general practice, it can be mm. very variable, but most people can get a good deal from their GP. Mm. So, uh, you know, there may be a, wa- a waiting for an appointment and that's frustrating, but generally general practice service is good. Emergency care is very good in this country mm. where people really feel what is or isn't available and how long you wait is if you have a condition that you need a, a hospital appointment for or surgery for, and then you mm. see the wait and you see mm. the limitations. Mm. So the next part of the survey is about how confident people are that the NHS would be able to treat specific illnesses or health issues. It's absolutely fascinating. So 90% of people are confident that the NHS would be able to treat a minor injury. 83% are confident the NHS would be able to treat heart disease. 82% said yes for diabetes. 83% said yes for strokes. Another 83% are confident the NHS would treat a respiratory illness. 79% are confident about infectious diseases and 79% are confident for cancer. And then for mental illness, the number drops to 43%. A huge drop. Mm, Absolutely massive. massive. So, Trisha, where do you think that disparity comes from? Well, I think there's no doubt there's a crisis in Mm. in our funding and and, uh, services for mental health. So we're aware of that. I can understand why people are frustrated. If you look at the things at the top of the list, they're things that we have prioritised. So cancer, Mm. we have a great service. Uh, We don't do the the very expensive, rarer treatments. You could argue about that. You could get in the States or elsewhere. Diabetes, we run an incredibly good service for Mm -hmm. people with diabetes. And the reason money's been put in is... The diabetes can cause so many long-term complications. If we can reduce them, we cut the cost. So mm-hmm. those ones at the top, but then there's a lot of things at the bottom. There are some things I'm sure people would be frustrated, cosmetic surgery or whatever that we've now axed off the list. Mm-hmm. But there's a few things like varicose veins, cataracts, uh, which are, are a long waiting list or not done now. And, mm-hmm. and that must be very frustrating. Mm. I think we've mentioned the kind of marriage between health and social care. I wonder, with with mental illness, a lot of the care you think would be in the community. So do you think mental health people don't have confidence in the service because it's more geared towards social care? I I think there just aren't the experts. We're very short on people with uh, psychiatric expertise and availability. Uh, To be honest, there's there's it's what a lot of people with a lot of mental health issues do need is a lot of social care, a lot of understanding, a lot of support. There are no easy fix drugs. I mean, there are drugs used, but Mm. there's no easy cures for depression, for psychosis, for all for anxiety. It's a long hard slog, and what Mm. you need along the way is a lot of support, and that starts thing and uh, that just isn't there. I can definitely imagine that what I was thinking when you were reading out that list of the stuff at the top is that it's also things that just sound familiar to us. They're, they're yeah. illnesses or conditions mm. that we know about and that mm. we understand. Mm-hmm. And, and in that way, it's a lot easier to say, yeah, I'm sure the NHS has yeah. got that one in hand, you know. Well, <laughs> mental illness, what does leg. it mean? Yeah, exactly. That's like, true. What does it mean to, to cure mental illness? We don't understand that well enough as a society yet. And mm. so to claim that the NHS knows, we're perhaps not as confident <laughs> to do. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, Trisha, I'd quite like to ask you about privatisation of the mm. NHS. Uh, if like, you must. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, a neat, immediately, you use those two words together. Yeah, yes. like, dirty, dirty words. My God, how it? dare you? Yes. Um, but we'll be part, like America. Yeah, but <laughs> parts of it already are privatized, right? Yes. Um, could you just talk us through which bits are and like where you think that might end up? Like, what, like, and is that a good thing or a bad thing? I, I'm 
I know it's yeah, so one, but... so what's privatized? To some degree, there's privatization of services. Mm. So you get people. So I used to work in a little community hospital that was run by Virgin. It was a health service hospital, mm-hmm. but the management level is Virgin. And you have to, or Virgin Care, and you have to ask yourself, you know, where, where's there going to be any profit in healthcare? But <laughs> that, I don't know what their, their remit was. Then, and the cleaning services and the food services. So all those services are mm. privatized. Then there are various things that we have deemed to be probably not a, a good way to spend the nation's money. So cosmetics. <laughs> Um, mm. services, arguably fertility. So a lot of people go for fertility services to a private service. And then more um, sort of chronic surgery. So if you want your hip done and the, the health service puts a fairly high bar on how much you have to be suffering before you should have your hip replaced or whatever. Right. So you can go earlier to private services. So those are some of the examples. I think the the real argument for privatisation isn't, isn't, doesn't lie there, but it lies in charging people for some basic things. Mm. So if you look at Guernsey, for example, they charge everyone 25 quid a time to see the GP. And if they need medication, they can claim that back off the 25 quid. And I'm not saying we should charge 25, but a five pound to see your GP. Well, is that the price of a pint of beer? I'm not sure. In London. London, (laughs) Where we're recording. I I think people sort of take it for granted and it it may mean that people think a little bit because a lot of Mm. people go to their GP when they could get advice from the pharmacy or from reading about things or Mm. thinking. So, you know, maybe there's an argument there to charge for things. Some people talk about charging for food and hospital for you know the sort of things that you can bring money in and and how contentious is that i'm not sure i feel that parking in in the hospital being charged is hugely contentious yeah. i don't yeah. think it should be but you know there's an argument you could look at so there's an there's, so there's is there creeping privatization of little corners or is there great swathes we should cut out mm. again we were talking about the polit- politicization of the nhs it would be so difficult to run on a ticket of saying we're going to start charging for GP appointments, even if that was sensible. That would, yeah, even if that was sensible. <laughs> yes. When you when you were a GP, Trisha, did you see lots of people coming in who didn't need to come to the GP? <laughs> I think it's fair to say that a lot of people do. They're worried about things or they keep coming back with the same thing or mm. a lot of people still come in, for example, with coughs, colds, even when they're persistent. Mm. Um, and, and it's very difficult to put people off but um, th- there needs to be a much better education from a younger age to self-manage simple things mm. and I think if uh, what worries me is if we charge for GPs is that that would put off people with genuine needs right. but mm. but there again five pounds what is five pounds mm. it's especially it, if you'll get the money back if within you need your medication, medication. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's not it's it of course it's difficult for some people who can't afford a lot and with young but but there you always have to remember that the under 18s and the elderly are always pretty because they don't pay for prescriptions mm-hmm. um, and and so that would continue probably and protect children I don't know it's, it's an area we do need to explore mm. and in terms of pharmacists I personally don't know what I could go to a pharmacist for no, where I you don't can either. get help yeah. I really I think that's a, a level of kind of public knowledge that from yes. my experience is quite low they're a great resource. So, yeah. you know, coughs, colds, all those sort of simple symptoms that, if you're honest, aren't killing you, but mm. they're just an, a nuisance. Even <laughs> yeah. persistent colds, they're, they're very good, our pharmacists. Mm-hmm. We were in Scotland for Christmas last year and found this really crazy situation. Not crazy at all, sorry. It exposed my complete ignorance of the, of the issue. My, my young daughter, who's um, five, was quite ill 
over Christmas. And obviously there's quite a lot of bank holidays over Christmas. Mm. So I was in Scotland trying to get my daughter some medical help. Yeah. Uh, and it was significantly more difficult than I thought it was going to be because right. we were in sort of the middle of nowhere. And the sort of the way to, to ensure I could, she could get help was to go to the doctors in Inverness, which is about, I don't know, 90 minute drive away from where, where we were. That didn't feel very feasible or sensible. And clearly we made the decision that she didn't need that either. That might mm-hmm. make her feel worse. She had um, really bad tonsillitis and stuff. Um, and I was on the phone to um, to kind of 111 and and. I just felt I got stuck in this weird sort of Kafkaesque. I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm live in England, but yeah. I'm in Scotland. Well, you literally can't speak to anyone because it was like five o'clock. You're gonna have to wait for an hour to speak to out of hours, and then you'll get seen because it was out of hours for the GP surgery. And this went on, and then they said, they said, no, you can't see anyone. You have to go to Inverness. And then they said, well, actually, you can go to Boots and speak to a pharmacist. <laughs> and we went to the Boots, and the pharmacist was lovely, and she said. Just turn up at the GP. They'll, they'll almost certainly see you. Really? Like yeah. two that minutes away. Yeah. And I was like, but then I was thinking, well, they made me go through that. And I was still going because mm-hmm. I was worried about her. And so probably there was some sort of corrective built into the system. Of, at one point, if I'd gone, <laughs> oh. oh, I can't be bothered, then it probably means there wasn't much wrong with her. But it was, Maybe. It was just, not yes. ill enough. It was really weird. I, had to, I was on the phone for ages. And they were like, well, just, just wait for an hour. Mm. And then you'll be able to see someone. There are, there are lots of options. So walk-ins yeah. at many mm. local hospitals you can do, even if you don't know them. There's increasingly uh, online or telephones at private services. So you'll have to pay, but you can talk directly to a GP. I have that on the NHS in London. Right, yes, IGP is an app. Yes. <laughs> yes. How do you yes. feel about that, Tricia? Uh it, it depends. I think, first of all, the elderly who can find that a real struggle mm. because they're not used to that mm. technology and they want to speak to someone in person. There is nothing like speaking to someone directly. Mm. But it can help you with more minor things, sort of sort a pathway through mm. and decide whether whether you you know need to see someone in person. I think parents' instincts are very important. So I think if you, if you really are <laughs> worried, about, yes, <laughs> worried about a child, then you, you need to take them somewhere. Um, and it might be, as you say, you might just invade the local GP. And it's a humane <laughs> service. No one is going to turn or yeah. shouldn't be turning you away. I would like to ask the room, uh, do you think there is a gender imbalance around the responsibility felt for contraception? Trisha. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> room full of women. women. Yeah. Oh, yes. Body think, language has changed yeah. immediately. Yes. Well, I think I'm going to be terribly sexist here, but I think men tend to think it's a woman's responsibility mm-hmm. if they want to be really sure. So, uh, and men, so men might go for something that they don't have to think about all the time. So, a condom that they can just use if they need to. Whereas women obsess about it. You know, we're constantly ingrained with, oh, you have to think about periods and contraception mm-hmm. and fertility and having babies and. So and and also women do do a lot more of the preventative health stuff. We look after the family. We're often described as the gatekeepers to health, the family. Mm. And so we do think about it all the time. And I think we don't trust men to be reliable. I'm not saying we don't trust them, but we just we just think, God, if I I really want to be sure I'm going to do it myself. Mm. And we think about these things in contraception Mm. a lot more, whereas men might go prepared for emergencies, which is often (laughs) their approach to many health things, just in case. Yeah, fix Fix it. it Yeah, exactly. Uh, Victoria. Um, I mean, I think I think one part of this that is just kind of important to consider and that is, I suppose, worth discussing how valid it is, but I would definitely say that as a woman, I feel that if I were to get pregnant before wanting to, that because you carry the child, Mm. 
it does feel like a bigger deal for yes. you, you know? Yeah. And and when you ask that question of should it be a shared, equally shared responsibility and versus what do you think it actually is? Mm. Of course it should be shared. But practically speaking, I'm also not hugely surprised that women feel more like mm. it is their responsibility because yes, you're sure, getting if, pregnant. You're the one yeah. that's getting pregnant and the man can run off but you physically can't. <laughs> you know? like, and for that reason alone, just pragmatically. like, yeah, Matilda. Uh, I think there is definitely a gender imbalance mm-hmm. and that women are women take much more of a responsibility. I completely agree with Victoria that I understand why. I think we've spoken, thought of in terms of relationships so far, but (laughs) you've also got to consider when people are just having casual sex that that you you can't really have the discussions, or you can, but you don't tend to have discussions about methods of contraception, whereas you would in a relationship. So I think there's another kind of imbalance there. So obviously, yes, I completely agree as well. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a, a gender imbalance. But I was interested by what you were saying, uh, Trisha and Victoria, uh, about the fact that women, it kind of almost has fallen that way. So should the responsibility be more on men to at least understand and have greater make more of an effort to have empathy about mm-hmm. what a woman would go through and the sort of lengths they go to and how much they think about it. And full disclosure, when we were uh, talking about um, uh, uh, doing health as one of the episodes of this podcast, uh, and I think someone mentioned uh, the male pill. I think it was you, Victoria, I can't remember. And mm. I said, is that, is that really a health issue? And then immediately I suddenly felt like the biggest idiot in the room. Yeah, the, because the, I was. Intake, the intake of breath. <sighs> because yeah, I, women think about... Yeah contraception fertility all the time I guess because you have periods you menstruate yeah. so yes constant reminders exactly. <laughs> you can't really get away from it and like you know you'll have period pain once a month and be essentially really ill it does it just feels like a constant health concern That's like the number one hmm. I think when you're thinking about whether or not to go on something like the pill mm. a large part of your concern is health related right? how is this going to affect my body mm. and mm. my mood and whatever else mm. and I think men can be a bit more resistant or squeamish to that particularly younger men they the thought of taking a hormone a hormonal mm. pill I mean I think you'd, you'd be having a, a really hard job to persuade men to do more but I think if with our education from a younger age they need to be more aware of their responsibilities mm. well so you go real time ask <laughs> Um, men uh, if it was ready uh, this came about I think this was done last year Victor I think you were involved yep. in this um, in this poll uh, and came about after it was um, revealed that there was uh, some quite strong advances being made in the production of the male pill uh, and they'd made some steps through and there'd been a successful trial uh, we're probably still a fair few years away from it being actually um, available um, widely available but you have asked uh, if it was readily available for men would you consider using hormonal con- contraception such as the pill or the implant and 33% of men said they would. Mm-hmm. Now, which is, what do we think of that number? I think that's quite low. Oh, I thought it was going to be, I think that's more than I expected. Really? <laughs> I thought it would be about 5%. <laughs> so would you like to know the uh, percentage of sexually active women who say they would consider using the pill? Must be very high, surely. So actually, a third of sexually active women currently use hormonal contraception. Really? Which is... Not low, but it's interesting. Lower than I expected. Which is yeah, lower than you expected. me too. So um, there's a few other kind of interesting stats. I'm going to save what I perceive to be the most interesting one till the end. <laughs> uh, so basically, eight, eight in ten Brits basically felt that men and women should share responsibility for contraception. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said, half of sexually active women either take the pill or will consider doing so. A third oh. of, act- of sexually active women currently use hormonal contraception. Oh. And a fifth of those who don't say 
uh, who don't say they would consider it. Uh, so that means uh, 47% of women in total are, are open to the concept. Um, one in three of sexually active men would consider taking it. But the reasons why they wouldn't take it are also very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um so of men and women who would not take a hormonal contraception but are in a relationship where the woman is able to get pregnant, the most common reason is... Side effects. Concern over side effects, mm. which was 31% of men and 33% of women. Again, very similar. One in six of both sexes uh, currently use condoms for contraception and see this is enough is enough. Uh, and one in 20, uh, so they don't, wouldn't use it because they would worry they'd forget. And again, it was quite split mm. evenly between men mm. and women. What was the most interesting statistic, though, that I pulled out was that 17% of men answered, I was not aware of the option of hormonal contraception uh, for men or women. Really? Wait, so is that... Oh, for men or women? Is that within the percentage of people who said they wouldn't take it, or is that overall? That is, for men who said they would not be willing to take hormonal contraception, why wouldn't they? And one of the reasons is because they didn't know it existed. So that probably levels out to somewhere around one in ten men total. Don't know. It's still staggeringly high, right? And I think what that, that stat there, I think, comes back to what you guys were talking about earlier, which is this absolute level of shocking ignorance of men mm-hmm. and uh, perhaps we could spend some time so, uh, so, uh, <laughs> so, as, pa- so as part of this I thought that actually there'd be some interesting to look at some myths around uh, the pill Yes, uh, and I, I kind of wondered if they were wide I'd like how how accurate they were, mm-hmm. um, if actually if this was regarded by women as well, which mm-hmm. uh, Matilda and uh, Victoria, you can kind of represent women on this. Part, but, um, <laughs> I'll speak on behalf of so, women. Thank you. Well, I, I was hoping that Trisha would answer the myths. As well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we speculate. But yeah. are, are, are there some widespread myths, and uh, and what are the most sort of common uh, misunderstandings? I guess about taking. Um, I think there's. Uh, a myth that it's totally guaranteed to prevent pregnancy and there is a very low level of pregnancy. I mean, it's very good. It's 99 point something, but occasionally it occurs. (laughs) Yes, and I think, you know, it's difficult to tease out of that whether people are forgetting to take one pill or not or some women have different hormonal levels and the pill doesn't quite control things. just sorry to interrupt, but I was never told that when I when I I used to be on the pill. I'm not mm. on it anymore. But I was told by several different nurses that it is absolutely 100 percent effective, and that that 99.9 percent is only for because of people who forget. Yes, but it's difficult. To, well, it's difficult to. Know. Yes, you can't know. So in the studies, mm. there's a tiny window of occasionally people get pregnant, right. but mm. it may be that they've forgotten or didn't know they'd forgotten, or mm. um, sure, okay. you know, sort of erratic use, which is hard to pin down. Mm. Uh, there's concern, I don't know that you'd call it a myth, but there are concerns about um, uh, blood clots and deep vein thrombosis and those sort of side Mm -hmm. effects and Mm -hmm. how common they are and who should use things. And um, it is generally fairly safe, but there's always a risk of side effects. I think some people, I'm trying to think of myths with the pill, what people think. I guess the thing I think that's sort of the side effect stuff, like Mm. does it make you women put on weight does it make them more moody those kind of when I speak about it with my friends and we again to go back to emphasise how much we think about this me and my friends talk about this all the time (laughs) we often discuss it and the main thing that people bring up with the pill is their mood how much it affects your mood negatively Mm. can make you people report it making them feel absolutely awful but it's worth saying it differs 
pill to pill and mm. woman yes. to woman. Right? Yes, yes, of course. And there's an so. art to getting the right one for yeah. the for the right person. As uh, some people have mood problems, some people find that their mood's better on mm. it <laughs> and more even. So if if they used to get terribly premenstrual, then mm. it can even out things. So I, I think if you look at the statistics, it's not as big as mm. people think. And the same with weight. Some people find that they put on weight, but is that just the contentment of their lifestyle? They're more in a settled relationship mm. or something. Mm. Uh, and there's not a lot of good evidence evidence that people put on much weight if they do it's only a small amount <laughs> I, I just wonder if if the male pill were available do we think that would make would that change our behavior would, would men start taking the pill do we think or would they mm. because of the amount historically and culturally that women think about it as you said victoria because they're the ones who have to carry the baby mm. uh do we think it would actually have much impact is, there, is education the issue, not necessarily uh, the, the physical thing? Yeah, I suspect that men would probably put up with any side effects they perceive to be getting less. So, but but um, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that, that women are more used to compromise, still worry more about getting pregnant. So, mm. okay, if I feel more moody or if you're, damn it, I'm it's still going to do yeah. this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, whereas I think the guys might think, oh, well, I'll give that a miss for a bit. And, mm. But maybe I'm wrong. I definitely think, so obviously the question was, would you consider it if it were available? And there's quite a lot of yeah. caveats there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so I think it's quite a low risk poll to say yes or no. Yeah, I'm a new I, age guy. Yeah. Cool, so like, <laughs> what? It does what to me? Yes, yes. No way. So. Yes. It would have been interesting really to rerun it and say, what if XYZ mm. happened to you? you yes. know, and see whether those conditions change. Because that is something we see a lot. The slight different phrase of question can definitely move opinion around. I think like... Yeah. Yes. I can definitely imagine that at least a considerable proportion of those men would genuinely take it, whether they would carry on with it. I don't know. Like you say, whether they'd be more likely to drop it and forget yes. about it because yeah. it is lower risk for mm. them, maybe. But I think also with something like this, it's a it's a culture shift that would need to happen quite enormously, you know, that... That, I mean, if you think about the small social things, you and your friends, Matilda, sit mm. around and talk about this. If there's going to be a male pill, men are going to have to sit around yes, with their exactly. friends yeah. and talk about it. Are they going to? Like, no. In the pub, I can't see yeah. it. Yeah. So what I, pill you on then? Yeah. I, feel like, I feel like younger men almost certainly would be more likely to, whether it would be enough to to enable <laughs> Trish, you to... Mm. to Re, re sort of calibrate your view that you wouldn't trust us to I, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't wish to say but I suspect you're probably right um, do men discuss condoms in the pub <laughs> not uh, not frequently so not on but behalf of men speaking on behalf of men no I, I think um, I think the nature of uh, men's conversations are changing uh, a little I do think it's not quite as um, cliched as as people think and there is a lot more talk about uh, mental health, particularly, I think, actually, is, is something that I do talk that, about a little yeah. bit more. Um, you know, in my own personal experience, talking about being uh, a father is is definitely much something I talk about far more often than before mm. I was a father. Certainly, <laughs> uh, but also it's not just like the it's the, the sort of the the worry and and the, often on your children rather than yourself and your, or your partner. But that tends to be um, tends to be how the the um, conversation changes. Um, yeah. As part of my research, uh, I actually wondered what the sort of most common forms of contraception were around the world. Uh-huh. Uh, I was quite surprised because I think I assumed that contraception's the kind of least effective contraception. So things like withdrawal methods, sort of rhythm, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and those kind of more traditional methods were probably from 
non-Western cultures. But actually, um, the top 10 countries uh, for less effective contraceptive use, uh, such as withdrawal, was um, the top was by far was Albania, and then oh. Serbia, <laughs> and then Azerbaijan, Macedonia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, Armenia, Turkey, Congo, Montenegro, Greece. These are kind of very specific to that region, but it's That's sort of so su- southern, southern Eastern Europe, which yeah. I found... And is that cultural? <laughs> it is must be cultural. It's I would have thought. And, and a degree and of... of uh, yeah, and well, cost should, yeah. as well, mm. of course. You know, people can't... In a lot of those societies can't mm. afford the pill or it's not provided free. Mm. In terms of the most effective, uh, so the pill, mm. uh, sterilization, condoms, IUDs, etc., uh, the co- the top country for the most effective contraceptive use was China, uh, followed by followed by the UK. Interestingly, oh, that's yeah. because, because we provide it free. Because yeah. We, yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> do we know how that? Could, I assume most countries don't provide it free because it. No, they don't. Uh, comes no. on the NHS. I guess. Imagine yeah. what an enormous disincentive that is for so many people. Mm, yeah, it's crazy. That is definitely something I have to say as as token foreigner in the room that I. <laughs> would not stop going on about it when I came mm-hmm. here I, I came when I was 18 and I would go to the like under 25 clinic yes. and everyone was so nice mm. yes. and they were so like I can't commend them enough in terms of making you feel comfortable yes. being very no nonsense but mm. still caring you know not asking yes. too many questions but enough to make sure that you're safe and you're fine Yes, mm. just giving you anything you need and you walk on out and you're like oh that was so easy Yes, yeah. the um, clinics for specifically for young people mm. I think is so important as well just with feeling comfortable because yeah. Yeah. it's just much less scary environment if you know it's for yeah 16 to 25 year olds or whatever Definitely. it is mother's day is around the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones blue nile has something she'll adore need it fast most items can ship overnight plus enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So uh, on the subject of global health, the survey that I uh, would like to talk about is one which is based on a list put together by the World Health Organization at the beginning of this year. So the World Health Organization listed the 10 biggest threats to global health today mm. um, in light of kind of setting out their own challenge. So they set out a five-year plan to improve global health. And uh, we thought it would be interesting to compare to what extent the public viewed um, health issues as equally pressing to uh, experts at mm. the WHO. Um, so the YouGov real-time survey basically listed all of the global health issues that the WHO laid out and said, would you class this as a priority for global health? So to start off with the expert opinion, um, the WHO lists air pollution and climate change as the biggest threat to global health, followed by non-communicable diseases like diabetes, cancer or heart disease, global influenza pandemic, um, 
fragile and scary. <laughs> it's just a maybe, but you know, it's, it's a bit risky. Uh, fragile and vulnerable settings. So that'll be people who live in places where there's a protracted crisis of some kind, whether that's a combination of drought, famine, or whatever else. Antimicrobial resistance, which is actually mm. sort of lower than I would have thought it mm. is, but that's, you know, four or five down. Uh, Ebola and other high threat pathogens. Weak primary health care. Vaccine hesitancy. So when people are hesitant to take vaccines, mm. uh, dengue fever, and HIV. So those are their top 10 in order. Now, according to the British public, antibiotic resistance is seen as the most urgent issue for global health. So the most frequently selected issue was bacteria, parasites, and fungi becoming resistant to antibiotics, which six in 10 Britons, 59%, class as a priority for global health. The mm. second most voted issue by a very, very close margin was air pollution and climate change, which 54% class as the greatest uh, global health risk. What I think is interesting is that even those figures, I would not say are that high, 59% and 54% think those two things are priorities. And beyond that, there wasn't a single other issue on the list, which a majority of Britons saw as a, as a global health priority. So lack of accessible primary health care, 43% thought was a, was a, was a priority issue. Um, non-communicable diseases, 39%. Sustained crises, the same thing. Vaccine hesitancy, a third of people think that that's a priority, which maybe is a bit lower than mm. I thought as well. It's quite, that I personally in, find it's quite, quite on the news agenda, yeah, I find. So. Fashionable issue. <laughs> um, I think this is all appealing to our own inner scare monster. You know, yeah. what, what could be most awful and, uh, you know, what will cause the Armageddon? It's mm. bound to be an evil bug with mm. which we yeah. can't fight off with, with uh, antibiotics. Mm. Yeah. So I I think that's something that reaches straight into our fear centres and that's why people rate it highly. Yeah. There's been loads of good films about that sort yeah. of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would tend to agree. I think uh, a, um, antibiotic resistance is a real thing happening now. It's going to mm. be a bigger and bigger problem. And flu, I think we are overdue a, a big flu epidemic. Mm. But I, but I think... <laughs> <laughs> our producer is looking terrified. <laughs> what makes you say that? Like, what do you mean like, we're overdue? It's not like a volcano, is it? Or is it? Well, if you look at the natural change in the genetics of the flu virus, mm. then it does normally shift. It shifts and drifts. It drifts, it changes a little bit each year. And then every few years, there's a big shift. It changes suddenly and we don't have the immune protection to it. And so there is definitely a pattern mm. of every certain number of years of a, a, a more impactful flu. And we're, it was a long time since we had one. And I've interviewed um, uh, John Oxford, who's one of the top uh, flu virus people, and he has been saying for a few years this really is overdue coming. and was coming. And so when not. was the last big, big one? Are we talking the Spanish one, or we've we had a few since? Uh, then? No, we've had a few. We've had a few big. since then. In the seventies, <laughs> I think there were there was a big one, and um, certainly not in the past ten years. We've had various other oddities yeah. pop up, little ones. But I think the interesting thing about this is what you touched on, Tricia, in terms of what taps into our, our fears yes. um, and where our, where our perception of health risk comes from, I suppose. Yes. So I, for, for a separate piece of research outside of my role at YouGov, I was looking into the anti-vax community. Right. And there's lots of really interesting research that basically shows that the reason why there is now a bit of a resurgence of that kind of viewpoint is that we 
is that now the, the people who have that view have not lived at a time when there was a vaccine preventable mm. disease running rampant, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. And as soon as that happens, what you see around you is people getting more and more vaccines yes. without any clear demonstrable mm. proof that they work because by nature of the fact that you're not seeing anything, yes, they are yes, working. So but, you know, you, sword, yeah, you don't yes. have that emotional yes. attachment to it. Well, yeah, maybe antibiotic resistance is a bit different to that. Well, climate change, we're getting a lot of messaging around it. So yes. that fear is kind of... Yes, I think climate change is something we're all, and pollution, we're all mm. tapped into. But on the age front, it's very interesting because if you look at vaccines for older people, right. it's everybody puts their hand up, yes, me, 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 I'll yeah. have it. Right. You know, <laughs> they, have, they have witnessed in small children yeah. from, their, from their youth, yeah. uh, you know, terrible disease. But also... Also, they've seen amongst their friends how infections can be so lethal, so mm. also painful if you think of shingles or pneumonia. So the uptake of vaccines amongst older people who mm. know about them is very high. And, and of course, there isn't this emotive image of a sweet pink sort of, um, you know, tiny baby that's <laughs> not <Pain> been... <laughs> yes, exactly. That's not been subject mm. to years of pollution and wear. It's uh, <laughs> You're damaging this fresh baby. Yeah. So do you think that, um, just show that our, we, we prescribe antibiotics too frequently in this country? Uh, we do. Do. We're not as bad as some countries that are terrible. Mm. Um, but there's no doubt that people go to their GP wanting some sort of answer to, to why mm-hmm. they've still got a prolonged viral chest infection. They feel very disappointed if the GP can't give them something. GP's just got 10 minutes, 8 minutes to see them and get them out of the room again. And it's much quicker to write a prescription. And there's also a misunderstanding. So we've... Certainly amongst older patients, we're obsessed with treating urine infections and we dip urine, those little dipsticks, to test it when someone's got symptoms. And I would say in the past year or two, literally, we've begun to understand better why actually some people carry bacteria along and they're not causing an infection. So we've Mm. just had new guidelines which say most of the time don't dip unless someone's got symptoms, unless they've got a fever or Mm. pain. or um, so So certainly in an older age, group urine infections don't aren't always infections and don't need treating i'm not sure i understand that but that sounds really interesting <laughs> i'm not gonna lie so mm. so so people so older elderly people are going to the gp they're being told they have a urine infection but they not no, the actual bacteria that's might be causing the effect infection isn't actually the problem yeah so yeah. um i mean People of all ages may mm. get one. And I think, you know, younger women often know more about it because they're much more, women are much more vulnerable because the length of the tube coming out of the bladder is so much shorter and because aspects of sex and other things. But what happens more typically is that an older person, for example, falls over, falls are very common. They go to the GP or they're taken into hospital. We're looking for something to treat. Why did they fall over? We check their urine. There's a few bacteria around. Oh, they must have a urine infection that's knocked them off their feet. And so the number of times in the hospital I've I've seen people coming through with query urinary tract infection had a fall. So full query urinary tract infection. Oh, we'll give them some antibiotics. We'll start them anyway mm. before we put all the lab, uh, the tests through the laboratory. And so we've got to change our thinking, actually. They fall for all sorts of other reasons. And you might not find the reason. But um, so urine infections have always been... A, a target, and you'll talk. Well, I talk to a lot of relatives of older people who say, "Oh, mum's always getting one of those," and they'll go to the doctor and say, "Mum's not quite right. Can we have some antibiotics?" And the GP, you know, just hands them out. Or so it's a, it's a change in thought that actually this isn't the villain that we think it is. It can be a villain, but it isn't always. 
So what's interesting is that we've started off with these global, massive global issues, and we're, <laughs> and we're quite quickly talking about old people falling over in hospitals because your yes. infections is obviously very small. Yes. Um, are there any sort of other things that we should be doing that we can do very small that can tackle these major global pandemic things? Clearly, it's only going to be very small incrementally. But and supplementary to that, are, do you see stuff that makes you absolutely mad when you think, <laughs> "Why on earth are you it's doing so easy that? To solve. This is so mm-hmm. this is ridiculous." We, well, we've definitely become obsessed with cleanliness to the mm. point that we're avoiding all the bugs that would normally stimulate our immune system. So bugs are generally most bugs are good for us. They mm. they challenge our immune system. But at the moment, we have everything from chopping boards to whatever to avoid any contact with bugs. Well, a good bit of healthy earth as kids we used to scrabble around in. It's <laughs> probably you let your children eat dirt. Yeah, eat dirt. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear this, this advice. I'm all over this. So. Well, maybe not garden dirt because there are you know troublesome things in there. But generally, a bit of dirt is is harmless. But we've become obsessed mm. with avoiding dirt. And actually, uh, there's a big theory about asthma that it's because children are no longer exposed to worms so much, and that um, exposure. What? So (laughs) exposure to worm parasites stimulates a part of your immune system, um, which helps protect you from things. Uh, This is one of the theories to do with asthma and that we don't get exposed to parasites anymore. So the immune system becomes hyperactive Mm. and that can trigger inflammation and allergy. I'm not explaining it very well. It's more complex than that, but that's part of the theory. (laughs) But I, I also have a complete obsession with the microbiome and the bacteria we carry that are healthy bacteria. And to have a healthy microbiome will protect mm. you from a lot of things. Uh, we're only just scratching the surface of it at the I moment. Don't know what microbiome? It's, it's the genetic <laughs> element of all the bacteria you carry. Okay. So for every one cell in your body, there are ten bacterial cells mm. in or on you. So you really are just an empty spaceship carrying this massive <laughs> genetic load cool. of microorganisms. And we're beginning to understand how they actually control different aspects of the body. So anxiety and depression may partly be linked to the bacteria you carry in your gut, all sorts. So there's loads of different things and we've yet to learn most of it. Mm. Uh, But one thing is becoming clear that you need a healthy microbiome and that means eating a bit of dirt. (laughs) It means a a varied diet with plenty of um, not uh, completely sterilized vegetables and fruit. So bits of skin are good, bits of vegetable and fruit peel are good for you but variety as well and definitely not a hamburger and chips every day so i don't Aww. clean the veg from my veg box no that's good. is no. that good that's good that's very good <laughs> are those and antibiotics are bad because they wipe out all your protective oh, yeah. bacteria so avoid antibiotics when you can are the um drinks and yogurts and things that say they have good bacteria like is that true stuff mm. don't really know what that means again we don't really know yet what are good and what are bad we know some of the groups uh, and, and diversity is probably a big thing mm. so you carry about 3000 different species in your gut so if you're taking a yogurt with one species it probably won't make a lot of difference <laughs> much as they yeah, yeah much as they think it will you probably need variety mm-hmm. and you probably don't get enough from one drink i do really as a, another side note i think it is quite funny to see how sometimes like people will kind of say that they're following this very scientific health regime and it doesn't take many questions to find that they don't really yeah. understand what no. the things they're taking there was a brilliant video once um which was filmed in florida um which was just someone stopping a bunch of like fit runners running down the beach asking whether they were gluten-free and they were like uh, yeah yeah yeah. i never eat gluten yeah no i'm gluten-free and they were like why? okay yeah great um what is gluten <laughs> 
Bread? It's just carbs, yeah. It's just carbs. Yes. Yes. I think that takes us back to the beginning of levels of ignorance, you know, even amongst scientific people. Mm. So at the end of each episode, uh, Trisha, we'd like to round things up with uh, analysing what Britain is a nation of in relation to health this week. What do we think? I think you actually nailed it at the end there, ignorant. Well, I, yeah. there was the you, you said the phrase something about biome spaceships or something. Can it be ignorant biome spaceships? Yeah, ignorant bio spaceships. Well, all the worried. Well, I think the alternative is Ooh. you have people endlessly fretting about things that aren't actually making them that unwell. You can come every week if you can condense <laughs> yeah. it. This bit normally takes about ten minutes. Yeah, this is the struggle. It's a nation of the worried. Well, the worried. Well. If you'd like to see the full results of these surveys, visit YouGov or find in-depth articles and analysis on uk.news.yahoo.com forward slash BNO. We'll be back next week with more discussion around British stats and behaviour. So please subscribe if you've enjoyed today's show and feel free to reach out on Twitter using hashtag BNO. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.